The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode, we share a panel discussion moderated by Janine Pesh of Range between digital curators including Way Out Cash, Lemon Water, and Very Advanced from our 2021 Outdoor History Summit. Enjoy. Um, hello, everyone, and welcome to um, our panel today, uh, where we're going to be discussing digital collectors. So as Chase mentioned, we've been hearing from corporate archivists, and we will be hearing from historians, and we wanted to um, find the space in between and bring contemporary popular culture into it as well. Um, so much of our lives revolve around interacting um, with our phones and scrolling social media and engaging on social media. And there's this new um, crop of digital curators that are breathing new life into this concept of collecting and, 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 and archiving from a totally different perspective. So it's super exciting. Um, I'll give everybody a few more minutes to join. Okay, I see we've got our panelists here. Hey guys, how are you? Um, and I'll just cue us up for what we can expect. So this recording will be, uh, this panel will be recorded and there'll be a playback link uh, provided following the event. If you need anything or to speak to anyone directly, just chat. Chase in, in, in the chat and he'll uh, get back to you. Uh, my name is Janine Pesh. I am the founder of Range. Uh, my pronouns are she and her. I'm tuning in from the uh, ancestral and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples of the Squamish Nation in beautiful Squamish, British Columbia. I'm a New Yorker, but I've been living out here for two years and it's quite lovely. Um, Range is a creative agency specializing in trend forecasting, strategy, and content development. Uh, I started Range in 2012 and have been working in the outdoor industry since about 2005. Uh, we also produce something called the Horizon Report, which is a, re a weekly report presenting immediate cultural shifts and consumer insights for the outdoor active and wellness markets. Um, it's packed with actionable insights, intelligence, empathetic insights, and helps you determine needs versus wants. Um, we wanted to extend a special thank you for everyone who's tuning in today um, by gifting you guys a special copy of the uh, Horizon Report um, this week, which was dedicated to the um, Outdoor History Summit. So the entire report is dedicated to archival content. So after our presentation wraps today and our panel, um, you know, we'll be following up with some additional information about that. And I, and I will drop that in the chat as well. Um, so today's session, it's called Digital Curation, the New Archivists. So we'll, we're going to be chatting with digital curators and collectors to discuss the role that social media plays in building out archival collections. Uh, we really want to explore the impact that these archival collections have on modern product design and opportunities brands have to tap into the past as a way to connect with modern outdoors through platforms like social media. Like, why is that important? So we will open up the floor um, at the end to Q&A. So definitely be sure to drop questions into chat for us today. And we'll start by um, just introducing our panelists. I'm going to let them introduce themselves and, and just talk a little bit about who they are and why they're here. So I'll invite Jordan to join us from um, Very Advanced. Jordan, can you tell me just again a little bit about what you do, where you're based, and how did you start curating digitally or collecting digitally? 
Uh, yeah, for sure. Can uh, everyone hear me okay? Yeah, sound great. All right, awesome. Uh, first off, I'd like to apologize for some reason I can't upload the background. My my uh, iOS is not of the most recent version, but um, <laughs> yeah, just wanted to apologize for that. No worries. But, uh, but yeah, I, I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. I, I've been here for about 11 years now. Um, I, I guess I would consider myself a multidisciplinary creative. Um, I do a lot of styling work, a lot of consultation, uh, design research, uh, as well as, you know, DJ. I have a, a foot in the music industry as well. Um, and I, I essentially became, a, a, I guess, a digital curator, I would say, around 2016 or 17. Um, just like as an avid thrifter, I used to just kind of like post my findings to um, my Instagram account very advanced. And that kind of like turned into posting vintage ads, which turned into posting other like archival content um, and uh, which I usually try to give like good context to, you know, not just post the photo, but where does the photo come from? Who's responsible for like whatever creation uh, is in the photo or the photo itself. Um, and then things kind of just snowballed from there into other opportunities. So yeah, that's uh, pretty much my story in short. Great. Thank you. Um, Michelle, you're up next. Tell us a little bit about yeah, yeah. Um, you guys can hear me, right? Yeah. So okay. And like Jordan, I'm so sorry. I've never uploaded a background before. <laughs> so we're just gonna have to deal with my white wall. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Simon. Uh, I go by pronouns she and her. I'm based out of Toronto, Ontario. And I am a creative producer and brand strategist. So I really started Lemon Water at around, I think it was 2017 when I first wanted to get into podcasting. And so my podcast was centered around wellness. And at the time, I had a very different perception visually of like what wellness meant to me and what it made me feel. And so I really just started a mood board for myself. Um, and I was uploading photos from the seventies and the eighties, because for me, that's the time that I resonated with the most. Um, and it kind of just trickled to, you know, growing this community of like-minded people who kind of felt the same way. So now I actually do mood boards and sourcing for brands and it's super awesome. I feel like my job is not work and I'm very thankful. And yeah. Love it. I love how you've turned that into a launch pad. It sounds like everyone has in some way, shape or form for more creative endeavors. Um, Daniel, why don't you introduce yourself to, to us? Oh yeah. Thanks for having me. So my name is Daniel Eaton. Um, I'm from Middlesbrough, which is in the United Kingdom, um, and I run Way Out Cashier, which is a site dedicated to archiving and reselling outdoor gear. Um, I started that a couple of years back, just so I was getting a lot of pieces through. I felt like it'd be a shame not to share them. Some some were too good to let go, so I just wanted to have a footprint, really, like a sort of digital footprint of the stuff I was getting in and and selling back and, and that went straight into adverts like Jordan said and just everything that was sort of building these brands I, I started sharing myself and got a little community based around that yeah so it's a couple of years old now great yeah I mean it's definitely I feel like it's something that we saw a lot of in the Tumblr days and the Blogspot days you know shout out to some of the original Blogspot warriors like 10 engines and, um, you know, like people who in my, I guess from my creative generation who, who really started to create visual mood boards and as Tumblr and Blogspot started to kind of fade out, Instagram came into focus in the early, I guess it was like 2010s really. Um, it was a new platform and a new opportunity to showcase visually and connect with a bigger community. And I, I've talked with Chase a lot about that. Um, with the work that he's doing with the outdoor recre recreation archive and like the importance of like bringing those archival um, images and catalogs into this, you know, very accessible platform where more people can engage with it. It, it feels a little bit more like an opportunity to open the conversation up to people and invite them in as opposed to being something that's, you know, maybe closed off or, or you know, like as we were just hearing from the archival um, corporate archivists, things are a little bit more buttoned up and, and you know, you need appointments, you need to be have a, able to have access to it. So it's really more democratic, I guess, the approach you guys are taking. Um, I guess, 
you know, to start with some of the bigger questions and then we'll get more granular as we go, what role do you think digital archives play in supporting and documenting popular culture? You know, as we're doing so much work on like looking back to look ahead, um, but you're still capturing and resurfacing um, these like key moments in the zeitgeist that have like defined so many different decades. Um, what role do you think that plays in helping us um, track and trace things? We'd like to start, maybe Jordan? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at answering this. Um, I think um, one role for me, digital um, archiving has played, um, I guess, you know, just to rephrase the question in supporting and documenting popular culture is that um, one, you, you get a perspective that isn't from the brand. You get a perspective from someone who at one point um, or is still an active consumer. So there's a lot more personality in the stories that are told and the t context given. Um, I think that anything is relatable uh, is ultimately more um, consumable to for people. And I think that that is what all the panelists here maybe have in common. Like, yes, we're talking about things from yesteryear that appeal to millions of people, but it's through uh, a new generation um, that maybe weren't the primary consumer at the time it was active and also has their own story to tell. And I think, you know, that ultimately makes uh, the story more interesting or, you know, at least gives it a different perspective than the one that you always knew. And also there's also the act of like just typically like unearthing forgotten things that um, can be, you know, re-referenced, um, you know, for, for, you know, new designers and new artists in the industry as well. Love that. I really like that term, relatable and consumable. And I think we forget that because things do feel a little bit out of like out of reach or maybe even too big. And if I guess you're not the primary audience who is maybe around during the times, you know, when those products are being produced or sold or consumed, like you might feel like, you know, this, they're not for me or I don't necessarily have the right to access them or talk about them or even wear them. And, and you know, like obviously everything retro is trending right now and people really want to engage with this. I, I also wonder, you know, is it, is it become about, you know, is it about specializing or is it about being a generalist? And maybe we can talk about that a little bit later because I'd yeah. like to hear from um, Daniel and Michelle a little bit more about the role that they think digital curation plays in, in documenting popular culture as well. Definitely. So I think that personally, aside from, you know, more so the outdoor space, looking at a lot of brands now that are kind of mimicking or referencing the early 90s or early 2000s, we forget right now, like one of the biggest generations, which is Gen Z, they weren't really around at that time. Like they don't really know the reference of like what some of these specific eras had. So I think having that documented, like Jordan said too, really does support that kind of like emotional attachment that they can kind of develop and be like, okay, so I totally see why this specific brand is, you know, putting out this type of season because exactly like, I think everything right now is being referenced in every single space. It's not just one specific, um, just not one specific area. So that's definitely it too. Um, I've heard, you know, so many fun phrases uh, emerge recently as somebody who's just, constantly watching like trends and ebb, ebb and flow. Um, and out of New York Fashion Week this week, uh, a new term I heard co come out was Depop Couture, which is basically this <laughs> idea of like people combining rewear and resale with like super high end stuff. But like almost it's almost in this kind of like irreverent way to push back on consumerism and capitalism. And I just thought that was really fascinating. So it's this idea of like blending all these cultures together and, and looking at the eighties, the nineties, the seventies. And I grew up in the eighties. I'm an elder millennial, technically I'm 40. And I remember wanting to dress like, you know, in high school, like, you know, finding vintage Levi's and, 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 you know, finding things that reference the seventies and feeling like, so, cool and keen and like I was really expressing myself and now we just we've cycled through every single decade that we're looking to the aughts and we're looking to the 90s and things that don't even feel that far away from us to, to, to pull in that um cultural I guess credibility um but it is really interesting to see Gen Z kind of remix it especially through the lens of sustainability and and resale and kind of bring it back to, to full circle um Daniel, I don't know if you have anything to add there, but if you don't, no worries. If you do, we can 
love to hear from you. Yeah, just I agree with the other guys. I was just going to say as well, like it just Instagram just makes it super accessible. Like it makes archives really easy to sort of um, just digest, really, because like you say, you might think like a big massive brand archive could be out of reach. Like a lot of time it's under wraps and stuff. So if we just get little nuggets and we we can share them with the audience, it just makes it like a lot more accessible. I think like for me, I'm from the UK. And a lot of brands, it don't really reach me unless I look for them. So it, if I'm sort of sharing them with um, people in my geographical area, yeah, it just makes it really handy for people to dive into, really. Did you always uh, sell as well, or did you just start curating images, which which turned into an opportunity for a marketplace? Yeah, well... I was sort of always interested. I've studied like graphic design and stuff. So I was always really into the sort of adverts and um, that sort of thing. And a lot of them would date back to the 90s. There seemed to be a bit more personality with advertising back in the 90s. Um, so I sort of married that up with the, with the pieces I was getting into selling. The outdoor industry just seemed really good for advertising and it obviously had product as well. Yeah, there's a deep, over 100 years of legacy for us to pull inspiration from, which is also interesting. Um, Chase and Clinton did an interview with, I think it was either Hype Beast or High Somebody not that long ago about the archive. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that everybody forgets that the outdoor industry dates back so far a century. We all kind of associate the birth of the outdoor industry with, with you know, the 70s in Patagon- Patagonia um, and Sierra Designs and Kelty. But we're, we're forgetting that like brands like Abercrombie and Fitch um, had multi-level retail store in New York City where they sold camping goods and hunting equipment at the turn of the century. Um, you know, L.L. Bean, Orvis, um, American brands that, that go so far back. So I think it's really important to remember that, like, we have such a trove of information um, to work with. And I know we're going to hear more about that in our next panel, which is w- with our historians, which I'm very much looking forward to. Um, I'd love to know, like, just from everyone's point of view, what is your favorite period, decade or trend, I guess, that influences how you curate content? And, and why do you think you're so drawn to this? genre of design or memorabilia that's a oh go ahead sorry you go first um for me personally it's definitely the 70s and 80s and when I took a step back to kind of question like what is it why am I so infatuated and it really came down to how simple beautiful and delicate that era was communicated to us. And I don't know if it's just the way the photographers captured things or the way even ads were made at that time. It's just an era that I wish I grew up in um, so badly. So for me, it's definitely them. Yeah. What about you, Jordan? Uh, yeah, I would say the the 20 year span, if I can do that, I feel like that's a bit of a cheat code. Uh, I would say like 85 to 2005. Um, because for me, that that was, you know, I was born in 85. So it's like during, you know, my lifetime. But I saw a lot of great things in the 90s that I, I couldn't participate in firsthand uh, simply because I wasn't old enough. And But fortunately, just old enough to remember how impactful and significant a lot yeah. of these aesthetics were um, so that I can bring them around on my Instagram or, you know, however I'm able to relay, you know, my personal story with, with these certain time periods. And then I would say like the late nineties to the mid two thousands, because that was high school and college for me, like 99 to like 2008 roughly. Um, So like, there are a lot of things that, yes, I got to participate in firsthand, but being that that time period is almost two decades ago and, you know, the trend cycle is, usually 15 to 20 years, depending on what it is. Um, having a chance to kind of reinterpret it, uh, reinterpret trends that I participated in uh, directly um, now, you know, as someone who's well into adulthood is, is really fun and I think interesting as well. And like, we have such an interesting perspective because we are like the last generation to know a world that was analog, right? Like a pre-digital, pre-internet world where like maybe we weren't old enough, you know, to be actively 
um, involved in some of the trends that are like coming back full circle right now in the nineties, but like, you know, we had a front row seat to it in some way. Like we were absorbing yeah. it through osmosis. We were, yeah, definitely. I, definitely. Yeah. Right. And I think there's something really interesting about like the physicality of it. Like, you know, being alive during that time and, and getting to see cultures, subcultures bubble up, skateboarding, hip hop, mm-hmm. graffiti, you know, just like streetwear that, you know, like those, was- those, those opportunities to kind of have a front row seat where you had to be, you had to be physically present in order to be a part of it. You know, we had to go to libraries, we had to go to shows, we had to go to parks, skate parks, and, and be part of these movements. And, you know, it's almost a shame to me now, and maybe I'm just dating myself here, but like, you know, only getting to experience digitally. I feel like I love the idea of being able to see it and rem- being reminded of it, but I also love the opportunity that I had to actually be a part of it and, and, yeah. and at least absorb some of it. Yeah, that's totally. Um, and I, I just to say briefly, I always say like the 90s in particular, you know, uh, subcultures certainly started before then. But I think a lot of subcultures hit um, the, the pinnacle of their aesthetic in that decade. Like when you yeah. look at rave culture, skate culture, urban culture, a lot of these things that have converged to form what streetwear is today hit their aesthetic peak in the 90s. And I think that's also a reason why it's it's my favorite decade to reference. It just seems like a simpler time now, doesn't it? Like the worst thing we had to worry about was like Y2K. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now we're on the precipice of such big ideas or big impactful things like climate change. And um, Daniel, what about you? What's your favorite period or decade that you're drawn to or something that really resonates with you in terms of collecting and reselling? Yeah, I'd have to agree. It'd be the 90s. I mean, definitely from my point of view, I think outdoor gear was sort of... it was getting a bit to be a bit of a sweet spot in the 90s because technology was coming on but the aesthetics were still there from the 80s lingering around so there's a lot of color but the fabrics are really like useful because i know you're saying like ll bean being around since like 50s 60s and stuff but if you try to wear a lot of that stuff these days it'd be much too heavy for, for what we're doing in the outdoors but the 90s was definitely like a good combination of like function and sex as well. So it'd be the nineties for me as well. Yeah. Peak ECG, all the good stuff. Um, what do you, is when people are coming to your feed, Daniel, um, are they coming just purely for inspiration? Are they coming to purchase something? Um, and like what performs the best for you? You know, is there, is there a decade or era that does perform the best for you? Okay. And yeah, we keep saying it, but it definitely be nineties for me because, I do, it's a solid nostalgia element like we've been touching on I think yeah like growing up in the 90s but I was maybe too young for a lot of the stuff that I'm into now so you sort of recognize it from the past but now you can really like appreciate it so it's, yeah I think people are on the same level as me the customers um they're like a lot of the celebrity stuff re- really resonates with it the people on the feed and stuff, they're all supposed to do the best for me. I think it's just cool to see like celebrities wearing the same jacket as you, but you don't really like, oh, there's Jennifer Aniston in the North Face I've got or whatever. So, yeah. so that's what well for me. Do you have, can you like, can you pinpoint one item that you have, you covet the most? I mean, that's such a hard thing to ask and be like, what's your favorite outfit of all time or your favorite brand or all time, your favorite song? But like, is there an item that you, won't sell or you you know it's like something you just really covet and 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 you hold in really high regard or put on a pedestal for me there's there's nothing that i sort of put in that regard like i've had some crazy pieces through but i'll always sell it for the right price sort of thing because <laughs> i like that I did, yeah i did it well just to be like a software just a digital art really like I wasn't so much concerned with like hoarding stuff in the physical aspect so it's all about for me yeah well maybe some of the corporate archivists can get in touch with you to re-up on some of the key items you have that they're missing from their collections that's how um, a lot of like they'll sort of get in touch and say they could use that for their physical archive and it just makes sense like it's a lot better off in their hands than it is in mine to be honest um, thank you. Jordan, Michelle, what do you think uh, people are coming to your feed for? And what is like some of your most popular content or post content wise? Like what are people really engaging with? Michelle, you want to go? 
Yeah, sure. So it's funny. It could be between two things. I think first and foremost, obviously quotes do very well on my feed. Um, But I've just heard from a lot of people who've provided me with feedback and whatnot that they do come to my feed because they kind of feel it is very nostalgic, grounding and cleansing. Because again, like I do try to provide a lot of images of like, even if it's someone at a farmer's market, like back in the 80s or in the 90s, it's just something around just being simple but like really effective. Um, So quotes definitely do very well. It's some of my most engaging and highest engaging content. Um, But then I would definitely say stuff that hasn't been posted um, on anyone else's feed. And there were specific photos that I go to the library and spend hours in the archive, like scanning references. So even if it's a product shot of like an old shampoo bottle or an old toothbrush, like things like that, people are just like very taken back by because they don't think that they're going to find that (laughs) online. Um, So those definitely do very well as well. And there's a really big responsibility. Chase has mentioned this to me before, but when he realizes that he's maybe posted a print material um, or a scan um, on their account on the Outdoor Recreation Archive that hasn't been seen before and it's available to a new audience, there's an incredible responsibility there because, you know, you're introducing something that may have never been seen before. um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need to be a steward of that information. You know, you need to like, properly credited and, 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 you know, explain the context of it. And I do believe like, you know, there's a time and a, and a place for, for sharing content without going really deep and like getting into all the details. But as a, as somebody who kind of nerds out on, on the details and the context, like I'll, I always want to know as much as I can about it. So yeah. I'm sure you find that is also Definitely. something that you deal with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really simple for me to credit the magazine that was published or like the year, but going back to photographers, like, unless it's like an Irving Penn Clinique ad from the nineties, like you cannot really track down the photographer. So I try my best, but sometimes it's like beyond. It's yeah. Beyond. And I'm sure, I mean, even the archivists from the corporate, you know, the corporate archivist mentioned that like, if you're not there when it was originally printed, published or created and you didn't document it, then it's probably hard to trace back or track back now, um, which is why it's so important. Yeah. Something that I actually learned about a couple months ago was that if you go through a newspaper archive, they will actually credit the photographer all the time. So I've been finding photos from like the Toronto star from the eighties that will always have the photographer credited, which I absolutely love and find to be so important. Cool. And I'm sure that plays a big role in like, yeah. now, you know, working and engaging with brands and providing insight mm-hmm. and inspiration for them as well. Like having that accurate reference point for them. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Jordan, how about you? Um, yeah, I, I have to say, I think people come to me for like, um, like unearthed photos. I, I guess I, I can kind of say that like there are, there's some content on my page that, I mean, you know, it could be wrong here that maybe I feel like I was the first to post. I think one of the things that really kind of like steamrolled my account was that, you know, like a little pat on my back here, but that, that photo of Robin Williams and Issei Miyake, Um, that has made millions of rounds on the internet. I, you know, was the first person to post that photo and accurately identify that as a Issei Miyake piece like three years ago. And so it's like things like that. That's just one example. So just, I think people um, like to come to me for context and I'm very critical with my research uh, as well. I I, I don't post misinformation. I'm really, really big on that um, because I've seen a lot of similar accounts to mine and, you know, all of ours on this panel that, you know, will post a wrong year or a wrong photographer or a wrong clothing item. And, you know, not to sound like I have a, any sort of superiority complex, but I think misinformation on the internet, um, no matter how big or small is a problem, because uh, people take that and, you know, sort yeah. of like relay it as gospel. Um, so I think that, um, you know, context information, just, I, I guess maybe an educational experience, um, because I, I try to be informational without sounding condescending. And I think mm-hmm. people are, are really into that because, you know, the more relatable my words are, the more engagement and understanding I have with, with my audience. So I think that's maybe why people come to me. I love that. I really appreciate that, like, level of 
respect <laughs> and detail that you're adding into the equation because once it's live in the world and, it, and something is deployed onto the internet, it's yeah. like we lose all sense of source and, um, you know, lineage of it. You know, I even thinking about like Tumblr, I'm not sure if any of you guys were on Tumblr. I'd love to know if you were. Okay. Or <laughs> yes. still are. I still have a Tumblr account that I, I like checking it out every once in a while, which was my original mood board. Um, but like when things would get reposted so many times, you would lose the original source material from it and yeah. it would make me nuts. Cause I was always like, you know, and I, and then I'd spend time trying to track back, you know, like through reverse Google searches or, you know, that kind of thing. I'm sure everyone has their own like tactics that they deploy when it comes down to tracking down the information. But that Robin Williams image is so iconic. And so I thank you for bringing that to the feed, Jordan, wherever you yeah, found no. it. <laughs> no, I feel like I, I honestly, like it, it was just from, you know, I had, I have a, an account with, with, you know, Getty images. And I think this was before uh, it got, you know, super uh, yeah, hip with, with a lot of the archival online archival community and was just scrolling through. And I, it was all, I always knew that Robin Williams had a penchant for streetwear. So he was someone who I was like searching his name and looking for photos and found him wearing Bape and found him wearing Salomon and like yeah. all these cool brands before, like they really hit, you know, I guess like the, the, the greater uh, world is as popular, but like there was that one photo of him at the flubber premiere and he's wearing this jacket. And I was like, this jacket is insane. And I would not post it until I could ID the jacket. I had that photo probably backlogged for like six months. And then I came across an old Issei ad uh, completely independent of my research wow. from that, of that photo and I was like, this jacket looks familiar. Like, why, why, why is it like burning a hole in my brain right now? And then like a light bulb. Went on. That's the Robin Williams jacket. And wow. Posted that. And I, I got to say that that was like a turning point for my account because I think it got reshared and reposted a ton and, you know, got like a lot of uh, awareness off that one post. So I felt like I had to, I had a standard to uphold from that moment on. Yeah. Like true internet sleuthing. Um, yeah. So do you go offline as well when you're researching or is it mostly done online? Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, I mean, I, I, I have, um, a, I guess, a pretty substantial vintage magazine collection that uh, I've scanned from before. Um, it kind of breaks my heart to like, you know, tear them so I can scan them properly. But like, you know, you got to do what you yeah. got to do. I think a lot of this stuff is, is important to get out there because the more unearthed material that, you know, the younger generation sees, the more they have to reference for like new ideas and new creations. Yeah. So I, I like to think that like we all, you know, on this panel have an important part in that. Um, well, this is actually a great launch point for the next question I have is about community and like building that community. How important is that community when it comes to digital curation? I mean, obviously, you know, engagement in general is important when we think about the almighty algorithm and, and getting our and getting eyes on our posts and our feed and, and our numbers and followers. And I'm sure that's all very much important to you, but I feel like you guys are in it for something even more, even a little bit deeper. Like there's more of a connection that you probably have with some of your community that you've built on social media because they are also probably obsessed with the work just as much as you are. So tell me a little bit about maybe the community or how you've connected with people in special, meaningful ways through, through this platform. Um, yeah, I'll keep this explanation brief. I've met some really good friends in the last few years um, and have been able to, you know, build an online community that has led to like a lot of other opportunity. But I think that, you know, the internet is so vast. Now it was once like this niche thing only a few people participated in, but now it's this thing that everyone we know participates in. And I think that like a lot of real life happens online now. And so thusly you make friends online. Um, so I think, um, you know, I've been able to build like a strong community of, you know, like-minded and also maybe not so like-minded people who just kind of like, we all just appreciate what the other does and we have just, mm -hmm. you know, a good amount of respect for one another. Do you share Intel, you know, or is it like very, cause I'm, I do have a question about images, which we can get to, but I'm wondering if like, keep that in mind when we get to that question about inspiration, like if you're sharing Intel, Michelle, how about you with your community? Yeah. I mean, I think my situation may be a little bit different just because I do have a podcast and I do interview 
whether it's brown owner, brand owners, or other creators in the space that kind of share similar interests as well. So it's kind of being mindful of who I'm bringing onto the podcast and, you know, having it done with intention. And I think the community aspect, because I've tried to understand the behavior in, you know, why people do come to my page. It's kind of tailoring content for them too, as much as it is for me as well. Um, And I know we're going to get to this question a little bit later, but just to kind of echo what Jordan said, like I've met some incredible humans just by starting this platform that led to so many incredible opportunities. And we'll, we'll talk about that brand collaboration piece as well. But I think that it's, it's really important as also digital creators and digital archivists to kind of, you know, for brands to kind of work with like-minded individuals that they want to see themselves like line up with. So definitely super important. Um, it just makes me like, think about, I just start going like deep into the DMS and like all the opportunities that have emerged. And I, I mean, I'm sure I've reached out to all of you guys at some point in time to the DM and that's how we've started our relationships. And that's why you're here today. So there's something that I think is really important about the power of reaching out to people that are like-minded and doing something in the space, um, whether they reply to you or not, you know, who's to say, but at yeah. least you're taking that chance to start the conversation and you never know where it may take you. Um, Daniel, I'd like to know a little bit about your community because obviously it's more of a marketplace, um, not only just a digital curator, you're, you know, are these repeat customers or do you have people who are coming to you time and time again for specific items or specific brands or, you know, are, are they part, are they actively, you know, engaging with you in that capacity? Yeah, 100%. So I'll, I'll recognize people's names straight away. Like some of the most engaged people on the feed will be the best customers. So they'll be like ordering from me, re- repeat. And I've even joked with a lot of people, we should set up like some sort of subscription service where you can supply them each month with different fleeces and stuff like that. But everyone on the page, yeah, they, they engage in both with the marketplace and the, the feed itself. Mm-hmm. community is huge for me like I'll, I'll often answer people's questions they'll just be like what year is this from or whatever i know a lot of accounts they wouldn't reply to stuff like that it's pretty time consuming but sort of thing i enjoy i'll, I'll always help them out with a year if i can or where something's made if i know i'll share it straight away um, I'm also curious if I know COVID has really screwed things up for us is why we're doing this virtually and not in person, which is would be ideal. But like, do you take the, do you, can you take those conversations from like URL to IRL? Does that happen where we get the opportunity to engage with each other in, in the real world? I guess it's kind of a hard question to answer because of COVID, but if COVID wasn't around, it's, ideally, would you like to engage with people in real life as well? I mean, I'm sure like meetups and things like that, events, like, you know, I'm sure we're all missing that. And it seems like such a great opportunity to bring everybody together. Yeah, 100%. For me, for me being in the UK, a lot of the, um, a lot of the followers and a lot of the customers are in America. So, um, there's sort of that distance element, but um, loads of people have always said it. If I'm over in the UK, I'll give you a shout, this sort of thing. So that's a good thing, yeah. Definitely um, in real life. Yeah. What about you? And I, yeah, for myself personally, I've been asked to kind of speak on panels, which is an in real life experience. I've hosted some wellness events with other brands um, coming up. I do have a hike that's going to be organized with another um, with another Instagram curation account. So it's definitely collaborating on real life experiences is what I think people are craving. And I think since COVID, we're trying to kind of change that and find different ways to do it. But it's definitely possible. And I'm just waiting for also that time to kind of pass. And there's so many different things that we can do. I mean, I think one of my dream things was probably to like host an event at a library and like show people how to archive properly and like all of that. I would just, I'd love that. That sounds awesome. Please invite me to that if you do. I will. (laughs) As an American, it's actually easier for me to get to Toronto than it is back to New York city. So (laughs) of course. (laughs) Anything, anything on the radar for you, Jordan, in terms of real life events happening soon? Um, I mean, honestly, like I, I've been very careful with my my outings for obvious reasons. But yeah. as far as like 
meeting up with people I've met on on the internet. I've actually connected with a lot of people internationally in the UK and Japan. And so I wouldn't really have that opportunity super easily, even yeah. if there weren't a global pandemic. But one of my big goals is to to eventually go to Tokyo and meet, you know, like a few folks that I've met and, and have a, an online relationship with because, uh, you know, I think it'll just kind of grow me as a person and an, uh, as a digital archivist and, you know, just someone who's like interested in all aspects of creative culture in general. And, and Tokyo, Japan, Tokyo specifically, they have just done such an incredible job of, of collecting uh, oh, items, yes. archives, memorabilia. I mean, you can spend weeks combing and still not even scratch the surface of yeah. the amount of IP there and just inspiration, which is so great. Um, Okay, what about, okay, let's talk a little bit about collaborations. Michelle mentioned that earlier. We're going to get into that a little bit more. I'm curious to know, like, A, are brands coming to you or are they engaging with your feed? And if they are, how are you partnering with them on product or content? And like, what does that look like? So it definitely happens in various different ways. Um, For myself personally, it, it really has a big piece to do with, I don't even like calling it networking because I think networking, networking is such a corporate term. And I love like just meeting people online and I'm very notorious from taking it like IRL, I mean, URL to IRL and like just having friendships. So for myself personally, it was, you know, doing a collaboration with Peace and Quiet on a long sleeve and they're definitely a brand that really feeds the same like ethos as I do. So a clothing brand with someone who's kind of like-minded in the same space. In terms of companies reaching out to me, it would be more so of asking to create a direct a campaign or, you know, just asking for advice on what direction they can go in. So that just ties into, yes, it's a job for me, but it's also something that I would probably do on my spare time regardless. Um, And that's why I say, like, I've mentioned this in a number of interviews. I think my trajectory, just as like a human, I was the kid at like in grade six and grade seven athletic. I stayed at home and I was on Tumblr for like five hours a day, just, you know, curating very like aesthetically pleasing feeds. And I was like, where are we going with this? Like, this makes (laughs) no sense. And I'm like, I just love doing it. And I found therapy through it. I, it was very calming for me and I do this full time now. And so for me personally, it's like, it could be a number of things. So a clothing collaboration, a campaign collaboration, even if it's something like doing quotes for brand, like anything like I I truly believe that the sky is the limit when it comes to collaborations um I think you know referencing one specific Instagram account like organic lab like they did a sneaker with Solomon and that just makes sense you know like people were coming to their feed to kind of look at all these references from the outdoor space and then a brand reaches out to them being like let's do a sneaker so the sky is really the limit even just doing like a drink with a company like you could do anything yeah. And it's awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, because Brandon, I mean, the value is that is like what you bring to the table, the authenticity, the community, the culture, that like the understanding of those nuances. And um, I think it's an awesome opportunity to take advantage of that, right? Like mm-hmm. that trajectory, like you said, sky is the limit. And especially yeah. if you can find a great partner, yeah. right? I'm sure that makes all the difference for you. Like a brand mm-hmm. is aligned with your values. And your purpose, like kind of maybe on the same like purpose driven level, I, I, I'm sure that plays a big role in some of those yeah. decisions. It's like, it's so refreshing just working with a brand that gets it and also gives you like so much autonomy and what, what's going to happen. So yeah, that's, it's the best. You hear that brands here? Who <laughs> <laughs> are tuning in? Yeah. <laughs> gets it. Um, Jordan, how about you? Uh, yeah, I, I would say my my opportunities have been similar to Michelle. Um, I've been able to do some artistic and creative direction with brands. I've gotten styling jobs based off of my content from Very Advanced. Um, you know, also it's like you've also been featured recently as a model. I saw. Uh, yeah, that was, I, awesome. that was fun. I, I not a big fan of taking photos, but that was a, a wonderful experience to to have been included as you know, uh, a, you know, featured person in, in the, the ALD lookbook that just released this past week. But, uh, but yeah, like, 
like stuff like that. You know, I don't know if these opportunities would have come up if I didn't have this, this outlet for content and, you know, even DJ gigs, you know, they, they see my interest uh, within fashion and the history of fashion are very advanced. So a lot of brands have reached out to me when they find out I'm a DJ, like, Hey, we have an event, you know, I've, I've DJ events for Nike and North face and, and, you know, other brands that fit the, you know, the content and my feed. Um, so those types of partnerships have happened. I, I even through, you know, the work that I've been able to do through very advanced as well as just people kind of like asking me, like, why don't you have your own brand? Why don't you have your own brand? Uh, just before, you know, the pandemic started my own brand that was just, you know, t-shirts and hoodies for now that I hope to grow, uh, into, to a more robust offering of clothing, but you know, it's color plus company. And now I have a, a shoe collab coming out with color plus that'll be out next summer with Saucony. So it's like, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm working on a ton of things and none of this would be possible without, you know, having started a, a, a I guess a career if, for lack of a better word, as a, as a digital archivist. I love it. Um, I think my trajectory in my career has never been linear. And I've done something that's been very hard to put in a box for two decades uh, as a trend forecaster who specializes in the outdoor and active industry. Um, and you have to get creative. And you have to push to your own edge to keep iterating and pivoting and like staying relevant and like seeing what's resonating with, with people, consumers, brands, and how you can play a role in, in evolving and, and helping tell that story. So I really appreciate that flexibility there. Daniel, I'm wondering, you know, um, are brands shopping you? Do you know? Are they coming to you to find pieces or connect um, the dots and maybe something they're missing from their own archives? Yeah, definitely. That, that's happened a lot. Like some people get in touch first. Um, other times you'll just you'll just recognize the office on the shipping address or, or something like that and you can see where it's headed but yeah a lot of people get in touch and just say we're missing this or we, we could use this and stuff one of the ones i'm looking forward to is um osprey bags they got in touch when i posted this old grainy photo of theirs um and they were looking to recreate it going forward like with a new set of models yeah. it's like a Two kids wearing the old backpacks. Um, uh, so got, oh, so you said Osprey backpacks. Osprey, yeah. Correct, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're we're going to like recreate that. Cool. It's like a lot of the stuff I'll get is like old grainy images and that will be lost if we don't sort of preserve it and, and like reinterpret it. So that's what we're going to do going forward. Yeah, I think brands are definitely starting to see the value in preserving their history. Um, whether that's for like IP or it's for inspiration for future product development. Um, so I definitely see you guys as such an important conduit to like accessing that, whether it's images and assets or physical product. Um, I'd love to know where I know we can't reveal our sources, but like, where are we finding most of our sources? Or is this, you know, like, again, Michelle's mentioned, you know, well, sitting in the library, um, you know, like going to vintage stores, collecting magazines, are we just out of flea markets? Like, is it a combination of all of those things? I, I would say, yeah, for me, it's, it's a combination. I, you know, like I said before, also the internet is vast. There's, there's so many forums and photo archives on the internet from yesteryear that haven't been untouched or have been lightly sorted through. So even the internet still has like a lot of things that social media hasn't seen yet. Um, you know, can't give away my, my sources, but, <laughs> but for me, like I, I, like I said before with the Robin Williams photo, I hold on to things until I'm able to, to properly give context. So it's like, you know, I'm sitting on dozens of photos that I haven't even posted yet because it's like, all right, who's the photographer? Like, what are they wearing? Et cetera, et cetera. But like, yeah, like, um, you know, old magazines going through through archives and libraries. It's it's endless. So much material has been made since you know the 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 advent of the printing press or or even photo prints. That um, I think we have more out there than than we even know we do. Mm -hmm. How, and you said you're sitting on. I mean, in terms of an Ed Cal. You're sitting on images for months at a time before you even release them in the world if you're not 100% sure about um, their lineage. Um, are you, you know, like what's a typical, how far in advance are you working when you're, when you're programming um, and plugging in your grid? 
I, I got it. I have to admit, I don't really have a schedule and I probably should. Um, but, you know, like I, I try to because for me, like I've gotten work opportunities through very advanced, so, but I don't want to be so calculated with it that it becomes a job itself. So like, you know, at most I might do not at most, but at least I might do, you know, two photos a week. But like I don't have a schedule per se. I think it's just whenever things are right in the moment or like, you know, I might be sitting on a photo that might not be right to post when I find it, but something in, in the cultural zeitgeist happens that makes it the per perfect opportunity to post uh, at a moment later on. So I like might hold on to something because I feel like a trend is going to happen. Yeah. Or I feel like something might be released by a brand and I'm like, all right, let me sit on this and like wait until the right moment to post it. I try not to get too excited when I find stuff. Would you ever consider, or do you have a TikTok account? Is that someplace I, that I, see a lot of archival content emerging? Yeah, I do. And I, I noticed um, with fashion TikTok, um, there's like archival content, but it is, it's more, I, I would say advice-based. Like, yeah. you know, you have a lot of content creators giving you suggestions on brands, on how to style things Styling. or yeah, where to shop. I don't really see too, too much of what we do on TikTok yet, which means that maybe we should like hurry up and <laughs> and, and, and get it going. I, I, I have an account, but it is not like active. Like I just got the name and I was like, all right, if I want to start. So maybe we just need to get like uh, something trending on TikTok to start building that archival community there. Yeah. I, I can't imagine needing to to manage a, yet another social media platform for any of us. <laughs> um, yeah. But definitely an opportunity. How about you, Michelle? Where are you sourcing content? Or yeah, so I really don't believe in just not sharing resources because I don't I don't know why I've always just been an open book. <laughs> um, so, like I mentioned, definitely newspaper archives, um, library, but also like good old tumblr like tumblr is still very active even though i think now it's a very niche type of person that's on it which is totally fine but i do spend like hours on ends and it's kind of like i think my algorithm i don't know if tumblr even has an algorithm but like this suggested like it keeps coming through and i'm like wow that this 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 makes sense and so if someone does credit a photographer or a specific creative director I'll go back and I'll spend some time like really researching their, like all their previous work. It actually happens with architects as well. Um, and the funny thing that you said about TikTok, I personally like, I've had a couple of brands approach me and just like ask me for advice on it. And I think for me specifically, I'm so obsessed with either if it's graphic design or photo that I wouldn't know how to properly translate that into yeah. video unless yeah. I was like, well, unless we're going to make a really beautiful short film and they're like, you mean a 50 second? I'm like, yeah, but it's like, I won't be able to like half, like half yeah. do it. Like it's either like I'm going a hundred percent and we're making a beautiful art piece or I'm just not doing it. So but I feel like Jordan, you're right. If we hop on it, we probably we probably do really well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I really appreciate that though because it's so you know it's the medium connotes the creative with TikTok, yeah. right? Like it has to be these like short cut, quick yeah. hits of digestible or actionable takeaways, um, mm -hmm. which is like fun to to scroll through. But I don't want to really like stay and hang around. Like it's no, a yeah, I, I, I have to admit um, that it, it's how content is relayed on TikTok isn't appealing for me as a creator, um, as a consumer. Like, yeah, I can have fun with it. But yeah, like what Michelle says, I, I, I'm not quite sure how to relate what I do on very advanced to TikTok. Or maybe there's just like something new to create altogether. But I, I, I'm just... I'm not as interested in it as I should be, maybe. <laughs> All right, well, we'll incubate on that after. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. we'll put together a new, a new strategy. Daniel, yeah. how about you? Where are you sourcing your um, material and merchandise from, for the most part? Are you uh, trolling eBay? Are you, like, hitting vintage stores? Yeah, just a bit of everything, really. I mean, eBay can be good, but super, like, 
if you sort of buy something on eBay, a lot of the time that's what it's worth on eBay. So a lot of wholesale is big for me. Um, and for content, catalogs. Um, so what the Outdoor Archive is doing, basically, that, that's really, really important for me. Just um, get my uh, mini little archive going with catalogs and promo material, stuff like that. Or web pages as well, like I wouldn't rule out the internet. Yeah. Um, all sorts you just have to be patient right and wait for those little like diamonds in the rough to pop out or the needles in the haystack to kind of reveal themselves yeah that's it like so, some spend hours and you come up with nothing and then you go back the next day and there's something there that'll connect to thousands of people so it's always worth keeping an eye on um, I'm going to open, we're right at the end of our time, but I know there's maybe a question or two from the audience. I'm going to actually bring Chase back in and he has some questions he's been tracking and maybe he can ask to the group. Yeah, one question is more about the future of digital content curation. We've talked about video and TikTok and that being an avenue, but there also seems to be kind of a, a, a next iteration of you know accounts like Organic Lab or 90s Anxiety that are now monetizing this skill that you all have. You all have a talent and a skill to find, you know, trends, find material, find things that that will pop and, and that people will resonate with. And accounts like 90s Anxiety and Organic Lab now have a Patreon, right? Where they keep things behind a paywall. Whether that's good or bad, we can discuss, right? But um, I, I'd be curious to hear from you. What do you think the future of this space looks like? That's an interesting question. I, I think that, um, you know, Patreon and TikTok are the next steps in different directions uh, for what we do on Instagram. I think that for me personally, I would like my next step to be as much as I enjoy it, not to be able to rely on social media for my next opportunities. Um, you know, I, I would like to become so embedded in this <laughs> in this industry that like I, I can be seen for value outside of the content that I create online. Um, so for me, that I know that's not like a general next step for this world as a whole, but for me, that would like I would like that to be my next step personally. Uh, do you have a Patreon account or are you active on Arena? That was another question we had. Oh no, I, I don't have a Patreon account. Um, honestly, for, for me, I. I know, like, like I said before, I think the research I do is critical, but ultimately uh, anyone with a, a good amount of work ethic can do the same thing. So I don't know if I feel comfortable making people pay for that, but I think that's just how capitalism works too. Like, like we can all make our own hamburgers, but we still go to McDonald's, you know? So I, I think, I think that, um, you know, if you want to do that fine, I, I don't think, you know, there's, there's any like, you know, a moral aspect to it. Um, but for me, I, I just haven't put that effort into it. Is anyone else in the group on uh, Patreon or? Arena? So for me personally, like I will say again, like I mentioned previously, like I don't keep anything to myself. I love sharing everything to the world. And it's like, I think the idea of having my page behind a paywall Yes, would that benefit me 100%, but it just wouldn't sit right because I just, I want everyone to have access to it. I want it to be everywhere. Granted, some of these Patreons are not a lot. It's like $3 a month. And I'll be honest, like I see a lot of creative directors and art directors following me from brands. And I know they're probably saving my content and it's not just me. I'm sure it's the rest of you as well. And it's like, if they, I'm hoping that more of those brands aren't, just going to be paying their in-house creative director, but they'll probably be outsourcing to the pages that they're saving from. Love it. Um, I'm new to all of it as well. And I'm just trying <laughs> to figure out how it all works. Is it a sub stack? Is it a, you know, there's so many new tools out there for creators to get their content. At least there's, I feel like that in itself, there's something to be said about, you know, like people, organizations recognize the value and that hard skill. It's not a soft skill. It's a hard skill that you can market and, and, you know, deserve to be paid for and acknowledged for. So I do appreciate it. 
Um, I just found my old Tumblr that I threw into the chat. I don't know if anybody else <laughs> wants to share their old Tumblrs. What would like Tumblr. a Finsta Tumblr be called? I don't, I was like, what would a fake Tumblr be? Oh. And those, I'm sure they still exist, but. A Tumblr, but a so. Tumblr. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I actually deleted my, I don't know why I did this and what possessed me to do it, but I deleted my Tumblr that I had from 2010. Um, I think it was like last year. And I started a Fumbler. And it's private. And I just like, I've been starting that way, but it was so nice always scrolling down to like when you started and the things that you were saving oh and seeing and seeing how your taste level changed mm -hmm. and you know what you like, but it's also so it's so important. It's kind of like a tattoo. When you look at a tattoo 20 years after you get it, you're like, well, that's how I felt in that specific moment. So that was really nice too. <laughs> well, I'd like to just thank you all for your time today. Um, I re really appreciate bringing this different perspective into the conversation, which is, you know, so important and integral and getting this information in front of new audiences and continuing that legacy and educating is so, so important. So thank you for being a part of that and playing a role in it. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.